0: Let's do this, the Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce.
1: Hey, David. How are you doing?
0: Uh, I'm doing pretty good for a rainy day. Um, Yeah, it's pouring. in the middle of a pandemic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's that.
0: There's that. There's always that, the background noise. But today we're not here to talk about that. We are here to talk about hockey. Edmonton Oilers hockey, and we're here to talk. Well, we can't talk with. It's too bad that we can't have. Like, we have to figure out first how we can get co- like live comments. Like, do this live and get live comments. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's going to be possible because that'd be a lot of fun to hear it. Hear what the faithful have to say as we're as we're talking about things.
1: Maybe there's a way we could open it up so that followers of, say, the cult of hockey, the specific um, Twitter account that we've set up, could could write in and we could follow, but they'd have to know the timing or we could at least set up something in advance of a podcast and say, post your questions here and we'll answer some of them.
0: You know, if we did it on Periscope, and I don't know that technology, but I know that uh, if you do that, so that would be a whole nother level. I don't even know if that's possible. I don't know if it's possible to do interviews on Periscope. or So it's Mm -hmm. just, we'll just have to stick with this for now. But anyway, it is. Read
1: her input though, and I read her questions. That's something maybe we should uh, try and set up one time just for fun.
0: That is a very good idea. Today we're going to talk about a number of things. We're going to talk about what you've been delving into in a series of recent posts, the right side of the Oilers' defense and how it's shaping up for next year. We'll talk about the playoff format. We'll start with that, the playoff format being discussed in the NHL right now, Mm -hmm. Uh, although that's open to change very (laughs) rapidly. (laughs) We will talk about uh, a long-term project that I'm interested in, which is uh, the NHL draft and rating the people who actually rate the prospects. So people like Bob McKenzie and Craig Button and Corey Prodman who rate the prospects. And I'm, I'm curious, I've been curious about who does the best job of those individuals. So um, I've been digging into that. And finally, we'll be talk, We'll talk about the latest. Yes. A pull uh rumors emanating out of Bob Stauffer on orders. Now, um, mm-hmm. So let's start, Bruce, with the playoff format. And so they're talking about a 24-team playoff, two sites, 12 teams at each site. Um, and the Oilers match up out of the that site. That, that that perspective idea would be the Chicago Blackhawks at this point. So I was kind of actually happy to see that because I think the Oilers really match up well against the Chicago Blackhawks. It's a team mm-hmm. that the Oilers, I think, can beat. So the Oilers would basically come out of this long layoff against the team they match up well against mm-hmm. um, and have a good chance of beating them, in my my opinion. So I that's my initial take. And I, I haven't looked into it any deeper or thought about it very much at all because these things are so subject to change and who knows what's going to
1: happen. Yeah. What's your thought? Oh, well, I mean, that format is a direct um, um, connection to what the NHL used to do as a league. Uh, back in the, in the late 70s uh, after they finished their uh, uh, their multiple expansions where they went from two, 6 to 18 teams in an 8-year span. They had 18 teams. They put 12 in the playoffs. Uh, so they kept their traditional ratio of 4 out of 6 teams in the playoffs. But, of course, 12 is not a binary number, so they had to work out a system where they gave the four divisional champs a buy in the first round, and then uh, they ranked, of the rest, they had best of three series, and so they played, you know, three games in rapid order, and sometimes of course just two games, and um, used that as a qualifier for then the best of seven series that followed. And so this would be the same thing on double the scale, where you basically have two leagues of roughly that size, east and west. Uh, divided into 12, uh, making the playoffs on both sides. Now, uh, my question is, if, of course, if you see the entire Western Conference based on current standings, um, three of the four teams getting the bye would be in the central, and the Edmonton Oilers would be fifth and uh, subject to having to play against the 12th place team uh, to get through to the next, which sounds like a good matchup, but best of three, right? I mean, it could all be over in two games.
0: I heard best uh, of five.
1: Oh, well, okay. Then it could all be over in three games. But best of five means then that the teams with the buy are waiting around a long time, which is why they, they settled on the best of three format in the past.
0: Well, they now, would play each other in those teams, In this uh, idea would play each other. The top teams would play exhibition games against each other. Oh, nice. Ma- or, or maybe they would play to see their own ranking. Maybe they would have, like, like who, who's going to play, like, you know. Sort out okay. which is the top top teams out of that group, and then mm-hmm. then that determines who you're going to play in the next round and whether you have home ice advantage in the next round. That that may, so those games might be meaningful in that way. What do you think about the Blackhawks?
1: Bruce? Here, here's my well, my take is that uh, the whole system, the way it's set up now, is structured around divisional playoffs with the possibility of one wild card moving over to another division. Um, but the you know the top three in each division are are guaranteed playoff spots, and, you know under the sixteen playoff team alignment, and even if they go to a to a playoff, why they still wouldn't stick to the divisional rivals uh, in which case you would get one and two in each division getting the bye. and then uh, Three, four, five, and six being involved in this other series, which would give Edmonton the bye. Like it's a crucial distinction from the Oilers' perspective as to whether they're doing a divisional playoff or a conference playoff. And all the recent um, uh, impetus of the league has been towards divisional playoffs. And whether they, I mean, they're throwing everything out the window, so who the hell knows? But I think if I'm the Oilers, I make that case and I make it hard. I'd rather have that buy and be playing those exhibition games as opposed to being out in my ass in two games potentially, which would be, you know, the most disastrous of all endings to this disastrous season.
0: So you're, you're not in favor of, you, you don't, you want the Oilers
1: to sort they're number, fight? Num- they're number two in the Pacific, you know, that's,
0: Okay. Yeah. So you think they earned that and they should stick to the current system?
1: Well, I mean, it's as much as possible. Okay. You have one crossover team. You're going to have a wild card. You know, you have seven teams from the Central and only five from the Pacific because, let's face it, the three California teams are junk. But So you have a wild card and one Central team crossing into the Pacific and they're playing in the three, four, five, six, um, you know, playing series. And one and two are waiting for the winners of those series. Oh, so,
0: okay. I'm, that's I'm my okay.
1: take. I'm an Oilers fan, so I mean, but to me, if you're, you know, the the way this whole thing is structured is divisional playoffs. So let's stick to it.
0: I'm okay with whatever they do, Bruce. Honestly, as long as there's playoffs, and mm-hmm. you know, I've I've moved from ninety uh, percent sure to ninety nine percent, and I'm I'm Remember going to ninety ninety nine point nine percent now. All right. Given the given the current trends in society and, and they're going to be able to find some jurisdiction especially in the United States yeah. there's some there's some pretty open jurisdictions in the United States where there's very little transmission of this and and there's and the and also the governments are more open to having commercial activity going on business activity going on normal business activity and I think we're not, at least at this point, we're not starting to see a huge uptick in cases and, and deaths in those states that have opened up the most. And in, uh, in Edmonton, I mean, we've almost got this thing licked. There hasn't been a new case in a few days here. We're doing tons of testing. You know, I'm at the point, Bruce, where I'm I'm going to make a second prediction. Mm-hmm. I, uh, 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 I think there's going to be fans at these games. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of fans necessarily but i think there's a there's a i'm going to say a 50/50 chance there's going to be some fans are going to be allowed to go to these games and um we might I, i'm maybe it's a quarter full maybe it's a fifth full you know maybe it's every fifth seat or something like that now the problem is what we know is that activities like singing and loud talking yeah. uh is that's when this this uh, super spreader events happen so at a hockey game where people are yelling that could be mm. That's going to be a problem for hockey. So there is that super spreader factor, which goes into allowing fans at a hockey game. You can't very well tell fans just to sit there and not yell. Or maybe you can. Maybe that's a rule. Yeah. That, that, uh, no matter what uh, the
1: ref does, Bruce, you can't say a word. <laughs> just bite your tongue. bite your Well, tongue. you'll be shown the door. Bite a friend. towel. Bite a bullet. Just don't.
0: You will be shown the door if you start yelling <laughs> the re- at the ref. Because it's a threat to everyone. It's not just impolite, <laughs> it's a threat to everyone's health. Uh-huh. So uh, that's how they'll get you. Uh-huh. And uh, But but I think there's a possibility, and you might have to work out rules like that, where no loud cheering, please. You're allowed to tan, but you can't cheer. Uh, but you'd have to have it where, if someone does cheer, they'd have to be far enough apart. But I don't see why, necessarily, why you couldn't have fans. if the, If you're in a city where there's essentially no cases... Um, and you're you're spacing out the fans significantly. Maybe it's a possibility, so we'll see.
1: Maybe it's a possibility that they start this thing in these super bubbles, and by the time they get to the semifinals or finals, uh, the whole scenario has changed. Things have opened up a bit, and they say, okay, for the Stanley Cup finals, we're actually going to play it in the two cities. And, uh, and away we go good. with twenty five percent fans or, or, or whatever the rules are at that time. I mean we're talking months away before before they even start, let alone, you know, the playoff grind that then ensues. So it's well uh, well,
0: look at how we've gone in Alberta, Bruce, from projections of what was it, eight hundred thousand people might get this, like was the worst case scenario mm-hmm. to where it's pretty much clamped down. Um, and, you know, that's subject to rapid change, of course. Right. We, because of the infectiousness of the disease, but with social distancing and, yeah, so things can change fast. All right, let's-
1: So, and just one other point about the playoff structure is that the the other option that I'm not sure they have completely ruled out yet is find some way to finish out the regular season, to bring the 24 teams in and let them find a way to play off so that that 16 of them actually do make the playoffs in sort of the standard fashion. And so have some meaningful regular season games uh, in in the groups, yeah. and then cut it down that. that way. So, do you think the yeah. season is over?
0: Yeah, I I, I think it would be playoffs. It would be like mm-hmm. like in baseball if this if it's tied at the end and there's one game. Yeah. But that's not a regular season game. I think that's right. a. I don't know what that's considered as. Is it postseason? Is, I think it's a postseason oh, it's game.
1: A mighty high intensity environment to bring players back after three months. On, yeah. On the show there tonight. could be some okay.
0: exhi- exhibition games. Like each team might get a couple exhibition games before they start the playoffs. Um, so it'll be it'll be what it is. I think, and you know, some fans aren't excited about it. I'm super excited, and I and again, I think this will be a very significant playoffs. If it does happen, it'll be really exciting, and I don't think people. I I think when it actually does happen, it's going to surprise all of us how much how much how exciting it is and how much fun it
1: is. Well, the the questions I have, especially they only have two cities, and they want to stick to NHL beat buildings because the back of the house is the scheduling is going to be a nightmare. You know, coming up today, game three of Edmonton versus Chicago at ten o'clock Thursday morning. Be there. You know, like there's only so many night slots available, right? For sort of your traditional game timing. So yeah. there's it, gonna be headaches there's and, and headaches. there's
0: overtime games too. What if it goes overtime like Yeah,
1: they'll actually I think they'll actually do something about that. I think they'll they'll, Have a shoot they'll up? set up a well, they'll go four and four, three on three after ten minutes, you know, yeah. something that's gonna just yeah. speed up the because they you know, absolutely like a triple overtime game would just Wreak havoc on the, on the yeah, schedule.
0: maybe they'll go. Uh, four hopefully, on four, not on hopefully, not
1: shootouts. Hopefully, not. I hate shootouts. Shootouts two just, on two is better than shootouts. Sorry, I'd love minor for, hockey week.
0: Of course, you're that's that's an oilers centric point of view, hoping for two on two.
1: Minor that, hockey week. Well, yeah. <laughs> one I, on minor, one. Let's
0: minor one hockey on, week. Let's yeah, go to one on one. Is that okay?
1: Do we you pull the goalie at, 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 at two on two, or do we go with uh, yeah.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm all for pulling the goal yeah, two On two. You get that face-off down on their end. In the NHL, though, you couldn't do it because mm-hmm. the players can pick off the puck uh, so much better. They can shoot it down the ice and score. All right, Bruce, let's talk about the yes-it-pull-you-yarvi rumors. And sure. there's talk, Bob Stauffer, and this is all speculation. This isn't uh, anything more than that. But there 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 is some indication that maybe some of these players might be on the block as well, not surprisingly, because they, like pulley yarvi haven't turned out that well. Um, in their NHL careers to date. So there's talk of f- four different players being possibilities. Tyson Yost of um, Colorado Avs, Casey Middlestad of the Buffalo Sabres, Leah Anderson of the New York Rangers, kind of, and Henrik Borgstrom, uh, mm-hmm. a big center with the Florida Panthers who played mostly last year in the AHL. And, Bruce, having looked at these players, and I I can't talk about their values. I can only go by the numbers. Right. I think Pugliarvi is a better bet to be a top, still a better bet to be a top six -er than any of the players on that list. Um, Anderson is apparently a slow skater. Um, Middle... Borgstrom, I don't see Borgstrom like his AHL scoring like it was like a point every second game
1: in the AHL last year. I don't see.
0: Now, Paul
1: was way higher than that as an eighteen-year-old. A yeah, I don't. He see had that. twenty-eight points in thirty-nine games, and Borgstrom had what twenty-three in forty-nine games as a twenty-two-year-old.
0: Yeah, like, come on, like I don't, uh, I don't yeah.
1: see the... Middlestat
0: yeah. got a point every two points every three games in the AHL, which was kind of okay, but That's what I think. See. Poliyarvi would have got a point a game close to that in the HL last year. Now Tyson Yost had it was in the NHL and he was a like a point every third game I think in the NHL. None of these guys really, in terms of their numbers, Bruce, uh, were moving the needle for me. But maybe other teams would look at Poliyarvi and say the same thing with him and the Oilers.
1: Yeah, well, Tyson Jost. Now, there's an interesting guy uh, from native of uh, my He's current seen. hometown of Saint Albert, Alberta. And uh, he was drafted in 2016, 10th overall, same draft as uh, as Poole Yarby, but a few picks later. Uh, he had a big year at uh, U of North Dakota. He graduated right into the NHL at uh, age 18. He played six games at the end of that season, and since then he's played 65, 70, 67 NHL games, and he's had the same season three times: 26 points, 20 sorry, 22 points, 26 points, 23 points. Like, he's just stuck at a point every third game.
0: Like a young and, Guy Lafleur.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> he, he had three years, didn't he? And then all of a sudden, he went supernova in Boom. year four. Yeah. And he was great for six years in a row after that. But, uh, yeah. yeah, he's not Guy Lafleur. Sorry.
0: <laughs> Either is yes
1: Yarby. Well, you know, yes or Yarby reminds me more of Guy Lafleur than yeah. he does of some players because he's so uh, instinctive yes. as a player. And he kind of, you know, he... He reacts to 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 things like he's not a systems player, and he really wasn't a systems player at all. But he would just overwhelm you with his speed and talent.
0: Pulley Arvey yeah. though is a solid. I think he's a solid de- defensive player, Bruce. I mean, I've always seen him as defensively <clears throat> responsible, usually on the right side of the puck in the defensive zone, able mm-hmm. to win battles. You, you know, covering his player like I, like I'm not Lafleur Le, Le was a bit more of a freelancer. Yeah, but Pulley I I still like the player, and I I still think he's a, a coin flip bet to be a top six winger, second line winger in the NHL. I think he's still a coin flip, and I don't think these other players are. But I don't I don't know about Tyson. Is it Joost or Joost? I don't know about him enough to say. Maybe he Maybe he's in the same boat as Pulleyarvi. Maybe he'd be the best bet in a trade. But um, I'd still prefer the Oilers try to get the highest possible draft pick that they can for um in this year's draft, which I. I'm guessing might be in in the late first round but maybe I overrate Puljearvi's value. I just can not for me I can't get past Burst that he he just was he played with Lucic so much with I the Oilers. That was such a bad combination of players on the ice at the same time. They they see, they couldn't seem to get away from it because they were really were the third line wingers yeah. of the team. And but it just didn't it certainly didn't work in the least for Puljearvi. Lucic couldn't get anything going on the forecheck. He was not a combination player at that point in terms of making passes with other players. He was a four-flying grinder, essentially, which is how Calgary used him last year, with maybe some success. I don't know. But, man, that was a bad start to Puglia career. And he was jerked around up and down Mm. to the minors, press box. What a mess they made of it Mm -hmm. with him. I, I wish he would come back here. I think he can be a top... Line winger, but if they're going to trade him, I would prefer a draft pick. What about you?
1: Well, or a combination. I mean, one of the one of the things that was thrown around was uh, Puljuari plus a pro- another prospect who wasn't named. Although various names were bandied about for Leas Anderson, one of the names on the list, plus the Rangers' first round pick. So mm-hmm. not only they get Anderson, but they get an upgrade. You know, get an upgraded pick late in the first round. And then they give up some other pick of some qual you know, some prospect of some quality back to the Rangers. Yeah. Uh in order to get that first rounder. And so that kind of combination deal, uh is, you know, where where they do get a draft pick out of it, that there's some appeal to that. The question is, of course, which prospect would you give up? is it Samorakov they're looking for? Is it uh uh is it Benson? Is it, you know, probably a defenseman, but uh You know, it's not gonna be Bouchard or Broberg, but uh if it's Lagason, maybe you make the deal. If it's uh maybe you don't make the deal, like it's but at least it's it's uh, you know, a a two for two in terms of assets at least, as opposed to player or a pick.
0: Here's how I see Pullierby now. The modern day Willie Lindstrom. That kind of on a good line, kind of the, the, the third, third wheel third wheel on a good line, defensively responsible, which I mm-hmm. still hold Puglia-Yarvi is. And, you know, chips in, he'd chip in 15 to 20 goals uh, as a second line winger, defensively responsible player, um, probably killing some penalties, not much power play time. Willie Lindstrom, the modern day
1: Willie Lindstrom. And I love was- I love Willie Lindstrom. He won three Avco Cups and two Stanley Cups. That's a hell of a career.
0: That's a hell of a thing that you know that Willie Lindstrom won three <laughs> Avco Cups, my friends. <laughs> That's major points for you, Bruce. 76, and he did, I- 78,
1: 79, David.
0: <laughs> impressive, Bruce. Impressive. <laughs> I
1: lived the WHA. I know you did too. But, I loved it. Uh, it left an imprint. It left an imprint. Some of these the records are just embedded. And the Oilers
0: grade. never did win that Avco Cup, did they? They should have won it the last year, but they
1: didn't. Yeah. Okay.
0: Uh Okay, let's move on. Are we done? I think we're done there. Let's talk about. Um, let's talk about the right side of the Oilers' defense, Bruce. Why don't you?
1: Sure.
0: What? What? If you had to too early to predict of course but we have Mm -hmm. because we haven't seen the playoffs but right Right. now if you had to go into the season let's say it's can't there is no playoffs it's canceled if you Mm -hmm. had to go into the season what would be your recommendations to Oilers GM Ken Holland on what should happen with the right side of the Edmonton Oilers defense what would you tell Holland
1: yeah it's it's an interesting scenario that he faces because for the first time in one forever the uh, Oilers actually have some real depth on the right side defense. I mean, I remember when Peter Cirelli came in and took control of the team. Uh, they had what our friend Low Tide called the leftorium, where at uh, training camp and on the extended roster, they had 15 left shot defensemen and two, two, count them, two right shot defensemen in the entire organization at that time.
0: And what were their names? Mark Fain um, and Justin Schultz.
1: <laughs> you got it.
0: Oh, You got it. So Not exactly a defensive stopper. Well, yeah, Fane well, was supposed to be, but he was a sieve.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Fane, yeah, yeah, I, I, have Sorry, of, I have a higher opinion of I have a higher opinion of Fane than you do, but uh, uh, he wasn't. I mean, he wasn't great. He <laughs> he was he was you know he was an NHL caliber, I think, uh, uh, you know, depth defenseman. But uh, uh, obviously, Charlie took a, a absolutely major um, step when he acquired Adam Larson. Uh, but he also what set to work in the draft, uh, bringing in uh, well Ethan Bear, uh, among others, and uh, John Marino. He got, he got yeah he drafted John Marino. He he signed Matt Banning, as a as a college free agent, and you know various ways um, uh, the team set about addressing that uh, that shortcoming. Well. All of a sudden now, they have five right defensemen who, I I would say, have designs on an NHL job in 2020-21. And uh, among them, uh, uh, two are restricted free agents and one is an unrestricted free agent. So questions abound right now about their contract status and what you do. Uh, Of course, the five players being Ethan Baer and Adam Larson, who's established themselves as the top four on the right side this year, uh, Matt Benning, who's been a third pairing guy ever, basically ever since he arrived, uh, and um, 20-year-old Evan Bouchard bubbling up from below, and 35-year-old Mike Green bubbling down from above that they acquired at the trade deadline, <laughs> who's an unrestricted free agent, but he might be uh, seen by Ken Holland as a you know a stopgap solution while they're waiting for Evan Bouchard. And it seems to me the logical course of action is to have stick with your top two. Signing Ethan Baer is an absolute must, and it will happen. The only question is, will they just sign him to a stopgap, you know, one- or two-year bridge contract, or will they try and go deep like they did with Oscar Kleppbaum? Uh, And then the third, uh, third, it gets real interesting. I think, well, obviously Bouchard is here, and he's under contract. One of the other two guys. They'll keep and one probably they, they'll move. Either they'll trade Matt Benning or they simply won't sign uh Mike Mike Green. But uh if you if you got rid of both those guys and gifted Bouchard the third pairing spot, well, then your depth that you finally built up has suddenly gone away again. So I do think they keep one. And I had I, I took a deep dive into Bear and Benning as being the two restricted free agents. And the really interesting thing I found there was the absolute opposite extremes of their usage that Dave Tippett went. He really, really, really trusted Ethan Bear, And, Bear. and yeah. he put him out there in very uh, difficult circumstances. He gave him heavy minutes. Only his partner Darnell Nurse had more minutes at even strength than Bear did, and not by much. Uh, but Bear played um, uh, the, the highest percentage of his ice time against elite opponents of any Oiler defenseman. Went to the rookie, Ethan Bear. Uh, he had the most uh, face-off starts per 60 minutes he was on the ice and the most face-off starts against elite opponents, an even higher number uh, than any other Oiler. And the face-off starts is... a. Uh, uh, Another expression of trust by the coach, who do you choose to put out there to start the shift against the other team's best players, as opposed to who do you throw over the boards 40 seconds into that shift with the puck going, getting dumped into the other team's end, and you're switching out defensemen, and then you kind of sneak in your third pairing defenseman for a few seconds against tired top opponents. That, that's how you shelter them. Uh, that, was, uh, that was, Tyler Dello did some great work on that uh, uh, before he went dark on his, on his blog, um, and it, but uh, about the ways of where if we just look at the matchups and how much time players play against opponents, uh, it doesn't really factor in what is their relative status during the shift. And as we've seen with the Oilers this year, you'd rather be playing against Leon Dreisaitl in the second minute of his shift than in the first minute, right?
0: There's so, one confounding thing, that, isn't there, with that stat that, though, Bruce? hmm The coach is only choosing half the time. Bear goes out against on the in the road games, the other coach is sending out right. the players against Bear. Yeah. So it can also be an indication, oh, I think I can make hay against this player. I'm gonna send out my top top line wingers. Right. But I'm guessing that's when Matt Benning got the tough competition that he saw was mainly on the
1: was mainly yeah, on the road. That's what that's what squeezes uh the percentages together.
0: Yeah, otherwise it's, still it's, have- yeah. We could, it would be interesting to split those into road home and see if there's any difference in the in the numbers against tough competition.
1: Well, the other thing Does that makes sense. Yes, it would. And the other thing is that um, Tippett trusted. Uh, Bear and Nurse to play a lot with uh, with McDavid and Drysaddle, For which sure. of course forced the hand of the other team's coach to say, "Well, if he's Bear, it's not he's not matching up against Bear when he makes that decision, he's matching up against McDavid, right?" Yeah. So, but uh, they go anyway, Bottom line being, Bear got a huge role right off the bat, and the deeper I dug into it, the more I thought I found no, he wasn't sheltered at all, and he was you know he was thrown in the deep end. Uh, Because he was better equipped to handle it than the other guys further down the roster. and I mean, part of it was, I mean, it was, I guess, good fortune for Bear that he stayed healthy. And uh, uh, other, uh, uh, Joel Pearson, who he was battling with the training camp, he missed the first game of the season. Then, of course, Larson broke his leg in that first game. And then they had to have, by the time Larson was ready to come back... Bearer was established as a go-to player, so it, it actually worked out pretty well, but uh, he's a go-to player for the foreseeable future. Ideally, they do the um, Oscar Kleffbaum thing. Yeah, and I hope so. Sign him long-term at reasonable dollars before, you know, he puts up uh, big years. Uh, um, on the other hand, I mean, Oscar Kleffbaum, when they signed him, both uh, Connor and Leon were still on their entry-level deals, and there was a little room to... To uh, you know, overpay him a little bit in the early years of the contract to get the value years at the end. Whereas Darnell Nurse, for instance, when he came due, by then both uh, Connor and Leon were on the big buck contracts, and there simply wasn't the cap space. You remember how tight the crunch was when they finally signed Nurse to that uh, two-year bridge contract in 2018, yeah. and probably they had an extra one or 1.5 million dollars uh, in that year's salary cap. They could have signed him long-term if they, if they you know, that was an option, but uh, his circumstances were different than Clefbombs, and I would argue Bear's circumstances are similar, more similar to Nurses than they were to Clefbombs, just because of the cap space available, and with all the uncertainty, A, due to COVID, and, you know, just sort of the, where the league goes next from here, uh, I expect to see a lot of one-year contracts uh, on expiring. Yeah. Deals this year. I, I, I'd and like I to see long-term That's a one-year bridge. That's, that's my, that's my gut. I, I think man. you're
0: right. I think you're correct, but I would really like to see long-term. And listen, done. lots of players are signed up long-term, and they're just going to have to, you know, they're going to get fifty. They're going to the players and the owners split fifty percent down the middle of the revenues, mm-hmm. whatever that is. You know, it's going to be prorated. So if you're signed to a four million deal under that eighty million dollar cap, if it gets to forty million, you're going to get half that. Mm-hmm. Is how it's going to have to work out and that's going to not make anyone happy, but that's going to be life. I'd really like to see them go long as long a term as they can with Bear. I think he's earned it um, based on that heavy usage. He's got yeah. such poise with the puck. He's a fundamentally sound defenseman. As the year went on, Bruce, he was exposed a few times for his lack of foot yeah. speed on the rush. Yeah. Um, that was my main concern with him always, but I just think he got worn down a little bit, and if you're out there long enough, it's going to happen. But as he gets more mature... If you can continue to stay in such fantastic physical condition and skating, then this guy has a 10-year NHL career ahead of him, and he's a a very good defenseman right now. So I'd like to see him signed up long-term if they can get him there. But like you, I don't expect that will happen. With Benning, Bruce, I'd like to see... I'm in favor of the moving Matt Benning while his value is high, Mm -hmm. because I think your research on him indicated that, that this is a very serviceable... Third-line defenseman who might be able to still step up and play in the top four on a mm-hmm. team in the NHL, um, outscores consistently every year when he's on the ice, kind of like the Chris Russell phenomenon, outscore, outscore, outscore. But I, I just worry about his price tag, mm-hmm. and I think there's all kinds of options, not just Mike Green, who I'm not enthused about. But there's, you, I think you could, there's Bouchard. But if you needed a defenseman there for half the year. Next year, what about Caleb Jones or Lagusin, or Russell on that side of the ice? I mean, I know they don't like that, but there's there's plenty of options other than Evan Bouchard, even even if they don't bring back um, Benning.
1: Yeah, well, if you run seven defensemen like most NHL rosters do, you're going to have one extra lefty or righty. Typically a lefty. You're going to have one guy that's going to need to be able to play on both sides for sure. I mean, in in the case of Benning. Uh, it was interesting. His usage actually went down under Dave Tippett. He got the least ice time, the least power play time, the least penalty kill time, uh least time against elites that he's had in his whole career, four years in. And, of course, all of that was, was complicated by the fact that he suffered two head injuries during the year. One one when Evander Kane smashed him in the head and nobody oh, seemed to notice. And You're then he came back and he took a look. slap shot in the head in the very first period of his return game. I mean, how how bad luck is that? And that put him out for two months. Uh, but uh, again, you know, he had another outscoring season, four in a row, where he's been uh, uh, a, a plus, and it's not a, it's not a, a it's not a fake plus because as a third pairing guy, he's not out there for empty net goals. He's not out there really for for special teams goals that pollute the traditional plus-minus, so it's actually pretty real. And each year he's outscored. Uh, collectively, he's outscored against elites, against middle opponents, against low-grade opponents. He outscored with McDavid, with Drysaddle, without either of them on the ice. He's been an outscorer over the course of his career. And that, that, I don't know, how, frankly, how he does it, other than every year the Oilers shoot 8 or 9% with Matt Benning on the ice, and the other team shoots 7%, and they, they, they just... You know, it's not like they're dominating a shot clock or anything. They just uh, um, g- have have that little edge. And whether it's just, you know, coin flip has landed heads for him four years in a row or, or whether, you know, he's just got got that little little bit to, uh, uh, you know, his, his points scoring is decent. Uh, he's got, um, uh, you know, and, and he's got, when he's played with... Uh, Dry settle this year, the Oilers scored 16 goals and allowed 3 Well, good luck finding dry Settle with that kind of stat With any other defenseman on this team And anyway, he's, he's got something going on I'd like to think 26 years old he'll be next year uh, 4 years, 250 games in the NHL That If they do look to move him on that, That's a trade asset that, uh, that might bring back some, some real value That uh, might solve a different problem
0: I agree, Bruce, and I think he's a good player. And, and, mm-hmm. and my, I just don't see his salary fitting in in the cap world. So I, I, here's why I think he's a good player. He's he's got a good shot from the point. He's mm-hmm. a, he's an okay he's just marginal passer of the puck. Mm-hmm. He's a marginal mover of the puck, but he is a very fundamentally sound defensive hockey player. He hardly gives up any. Like you got to earn every single thing you're going to get. get against Matt Benning. He's not, there's not a lot of bad pinches. There's not a lot of turnovers. There's not a lot of, there's certainly not a lot of lost battles and where he fails to cover someone in the slot. Those are the things he hardly ever does. He's always on his guy. He's always on the right side of the puck in the defensive zone. He's an extremely smart, capable defensive hockey player. And there's, there is a, he's not done it yet where he's been able to move up into the top four and succeed. Except in the playoffs in 2017, but he's not done that consistently for the Oilers. Could he? Could he become that player? Yeah, maybe he. Maybe he could on some team, but I don't think he's going to. You know, Bears moved ahead of him, and uh, yes, Larson. 100%. Larson stepped up and was fantastic in the last month or two of the season. For the first time, we saw the real Adam Larson since since 2017. So, and then you got Bouchard coming on. I mean, Evan Bouchard. This is a perfect spot for that. The third pairing on the owners next year is a perfect spot for a puck moving offensive defenseman. He's going to play about 15, 16 minutes a game, soft minutes, just move the puck with a solid partner on his, on his side, move the puck, move the puck with the puck, maybe play on the power play. That's a great spot for Bouchard. Although I wouldn't mind him seeing half the year in the AHL, but again, you have other options there. You could play Jones, mm-hmm. Russell, or Lagos if they don't move Russ Russell out, which I think they probably will. So I, I really like Matt Benning, but maybe for him, he needs that. Maybe there's this team dying for a right side D man who can get the job done. They might love Matt Benning at, at two, $2 million a year. They would love him.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that, and that platform salary, that's, that's the issue. I mean, um, Charlie signed him at the two-year deal uh, at the ELC was at the standard amount with a b- small bonus. But after the two years, which were pretty good, he gave him a nice raise to $1.9 million average salary and actually it was $1.82. So the, the qualifying offer is a flat $2 million that they need to bring him back at unless they can agree on a different figure. And then it becomes a question of marginal value. Here's the contract. Where's the performance in there, right? And it, <sighs> if the platform was even 1.5 million you know you could make it i think an extremely strong case that he's he's worth that qualifying offer and then you dicker from there at 2 million i think he's worth the qualifying offer but if you're going to trade him you probably the better idea is to trade him before that ever comes up and let the other team that's going to get him you know do the contract negotiations but um he's got uh uh, he's an interesting player. I, one of the other things I like about him is is how fiercely competitive he is, and how every once in a while he will absolutely blow up a guy on the other team. He'll step up and just crush somebody. It's surprising because he's only like you know six foot two hundred pounds, nothing. But man, when he decides to close that gap in a hurry, he's delivered some devastating shots. But the the downside of that is he's been on the receiving end of a few, and physically he's taken a a beating, especially that old noggin uh, over oh, his yeah. time here. So that's, yeah. you know.
0: That's probably held him back more than anything. Like Did this year. And probably all along. Mm-hmm. Bruce, let's talk now about rating the hockey raters. So every year there's numerous uh, draft uh, services. I think they're all, pretty much all men. Numerous guys doing this work. <laughs> so uh, Ryan, I took a look at 11 of them in close detail at the work through the 2013 to 2015 drafts. And you have to go back that far to get the five years. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of judge drafted players, I think, five years out. That's a good, you know, if they're gonna make it, it's usually within five years. So that's a safe time distance. So we can look back at the 2015 draft and now judge how these guys did. So what I was what I was trying to do was look at how look at their draft list then and see how those players turned out now. And rate them on how well their draft lists matched up with how those players have turned out now. And when you do that, um, I found that the NHL scouts overall were the best at judging NHL talent. Looking into that crystal ball and figuring out who's going to be the best. The NHL scouts did a better job overall over the three years of three drafts than anyone Mm -hmm. else. But they didn't do the best every single year. Right. So Ryan Kennedy of the hockey news did the best in 2014 in terms mm-hmm. of looking into that crystal ball and yep. um, hockey prospect Mark Edwards and his organization mm-hmm. did the best in 2015 with the NHL scouts doing the best in 2013. And uh, there's another guy who crept in there. Alan Tide Mitchell was after the NHL scouts, there was a three way tie for the second best um, uh Rankers, raters, and that was Ryan Kennedy of the Hockey News, Hockey Prospect, Mark Edwards, and Alan Low Tide Mitchell. So, good work by Low Tide, and he's got a. All of these people who rate the players have a very, very many of them have a very different way of doing it. Some are in the rink on their own, like I know Corey Prondman, he's is in the rink kind of guy. Hockey Prospect Mark Edwards in the rink, they're out in the rinks low tide isn't in the ranks but he uses math he uses the numbers and yep. uh, to base his his rankings and he did very very well with his system um you know better than craig button better than bob McKenzie's system bob mckenzie talks to 10 scouts i think of your right. 10 scouts that he knows and he he develops his list that way so low tide beat some pretty big names in terms of his work, Bruce. So uh, congratulations to him.
1: He's the only one I see by your rankings here, looking at the three years, he's the only guy who beat the NHL Scouts in two out of the three years, uh, both 14 and 15. He his, uh, he slipped in ahead of the NHL Scouts and the deficit came in, in 2013. Uh, but he would be the, o- the only one of... Uh, all the other ten, who beat the scouts in in uh, in two different seasons. So, his system, and he, you know, he's quite open about it. You know, and rely like he doesn't go and scout 400 players like some of these guys. I don't know how the hell they do it, David. Uh, they they, uh, they watch so many players and 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 try and place them in an appropriate order. Uh, low Tide relies more on you know stats on on math NHL equivalencies. He rates for foot speed. He rewards offense. He 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 knocks down players that have reputation as defense first guys and, and uh uh he's uh, uh his his list is always interesting and, and often he'll single single out a guy who's getting dropped by other lists for unknown reasons. I mean Arthur Kellia for instance of uh uh, Los Angeles Kings was a guy that Allen had, I think, in his top five last year, and he went 32nd overall to L.A. Kings. And he just tore it up in the OHL again this year. And, you know, he's just a player to watch. He's one of those litmus ca- lis- litmus test cases of let's see how this guy really yeah. does as opposed to uh, him getting hammered. I know, I mean, another great example from a little further ago, Alex DeBrincat, who has proven you know, became a 40-goal scorer in the NHL within a couple of years of being a second-round draft pick. So, you know... When so some, then,
0: and sometimes it really works, and, and and on average, it seems to work better, right? On average, mm-hmm. this seems to be working, at least in these three drafts, the three most recent ones that we can actually get a good read on how these guys did. Right. His system seemed to work pretty well. Now, there's examples from the 2013 draft, which I looked at closely in my latest post, where it didn't right. work. He had... He had uh, yep. Jonathan Drewan first overall, Oops. and yeah, and he had I think he had Patan fairly Nick Patan I think was that draft as well if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. but let's just focus on Drewan. He and uh, Pradman were the only ones of the drafters to have uh, Druan so high, and he's in my redraft. I had him nineteenth. I would have nineteenth overall, which I think is a fairly fair this number. This is for the him. McKinnon draft. This is the McKinnon draft. So. And Seth Jones was there as well. Mm -hmm. So you know, you had when when you're the most important thing by far is the top three or four or five picks in any draft. And if you don't get those right, Mm -hmm. it's so in the 2013 draft that was Low Tide's worst showing, and it was his worst showing largely because he got the top guy wrong, Duran wrong, and um, even if he had had him third. That would have had a significant difference in his ranking compared to the other rankers. But going first on him, like you got to get, you, you had to have McKinnon at the top of your list. And if you didn't have that, you're, you, you know, you you really made a huge mistake in terms of your ranking that year. Is is the honest to god truth. But Low Tide System it's going to have mistakes like that. Like any system, you're you're going to have some hits and misses. And the idea is to have more hits than misses. And on average. He's done, he did very well. Like you say, beating the NHL scouts two out of three years is pretty, that's, he's got to feel happy today about that accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, and this is based on whether my own method of rating these players is correct. And, you know, and I think there could be an argument about how strong my own way of ranking the rank raters is. How how well did I do in coming up with a system to rank them? I did as well as I could, and I put a lot of work into this and I, and i think that it the system that i have is actually pretty strong in terms of using the career value of the players um, to rate rate them and but is my own redraft how how accurate and strong was that i i think there's room for discussion there certainly but i think i did you know i i certainly wasn't trying to favor anyone i did i had no idea who who was going to benefit from right. ranking the players in the order i just tried to put like the top line players at the top second line players next third line players fourth line players with the very best of the first line players at the very top of the list so
1: right well it, it, and it it introduces a, yet another layer of subjectivity to what you know has already it, yeah. has a couple of layers of 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 that so it's it's not going to be an exact science but uh uh a valiant uh, effort on your part and i have a feeling you put quite a few hours into into too this many. research yeah, yourself too many. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for a kind of an arcane topic in in hockey circles it really is but you know people really I look at these lists all the time. Anyone who's mm-hmm. really into the draft yep, spends a lot of time pouring over these lists. I have for years and I've always wondered mm-hmm. who who does this best. Like you know you're reading this list and they're so confident in their evaluations and they're saying okay. this player reminds me of Leon Dreisud and this guy's the next, you know, Bob Gainey and then this this guy's the next, you know, Joe Sakic, kind and I just wonder like, yeah. do you really know? <laughs> so I want I've always wondered who does the best job. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna when the twenty sixteen draft comes up, like it'll be next year will be five years after that, I'm gonna then do I'm gonna keep doing this for a couple of years, uh as long as the virus doesn't get me. And uh keep keep uh oh, wow. Keep rating the keep rating the drafters to see, and I might even go if I can find the draft list for twenty twelve. I might go back one more year or two more right. years if I can find. Uh, it's pretty hard to find some of these draft lists, though. Honestly, well, in,
1: in twenty eleven and twelve, I know before, just before the draft, I did the similar thing that you've been doing recently, which is find a number of lists and 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 rate them, and then just sort of get the average rating to see who was okay. uh, who was top and in twenty eleven I remember it well um because there I only had five lists that I was comparing at that time, and uh blue Bullet Brad was one of them low tide I don't think I had a list in twenty eleven because he used blue Bullet, but uh, you know I also had McKenzie and and uh pranman I think it was and and uh uh who's the other guy that uh, was a military guy that he was a really good uh, uh, uh prospecto file anyway uh the the thing that I found about the list was that they they just seemed to be reordering of the same clumps of players. Like all five had Nuge at number one. All, all four of the five had the same top five, and the fifth one had one guy at number six. Uh, all five lists had the exact same top nine. All of the single-digit numbers were in this block of nine players. And then there was a second block from 10 to 21, Where they all had were placed in the first round, but none of them in the inside the top ten. And then the third list uh, from 22 to 30, which at that time, of course, there was 30 teams, had a majority. uh, Players appeared on the majority of the top 30s, but not all five of them. And these these three clusters, and it was just like they took a small deck and shuffled it, and and what they wound up with the same, the same ordering. And it's fun to look at that for the exceptions. And the, and the real exception there came in from, you know, outside the pack. Mark Scheifele was ranked not in the top nine, but Winnipeg took him at number seven. And to me, in the retrospect, you look at that draft, that is a big win for the Winnipeg scouts to to go against that form chart and say, remember when he got drafted and people were were shocked and saying, because I thought Winnipeg would take Couturier, who had dropped. And he would have been a great pick also, obviously. But, uh, you know, you could look at, back at that draft today and suggest that Shifley and Couturier were maybe the two best players in that draft, and they went seven and eight. So, <clears throat> you know, they, they, for all that there are these consensus, I, I think there's a little bit of reluctance to go outside of the box, unless you're Craig Button. And I, I'll tip my hat to Craig Button. He'll put his money where his mouth is. And and uh, he, uh, he will... Uh, uh, drop somebody precipitously or he'll really raise someone above where the consensus has them and, and uh, he'll make his case. And uh, uh, I think there, there are some lists that really don't like to do that. And they, so they, there winds up being a little bit of sameness. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Especially some years like this year, mm-hmm. the top nine, man, there's a huge amount of sameness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but again, if, Craig Button, like the 2013 draft, he had Zach Fucali, number seven. You know, if you just yeah, yeah. You, you, if you have that one really bad player high up on your list, that doesn't necessarily punish you. Maybe someone else will draft him before you get the chance. But man, that can really you could have an otherwise perfect list, but if you have that one guy way out of whack, and it's your turn to draft and you take him, then you're sunk. Yeah. So there's so much luck. This is this is what really hit me. Versus, like in the mm-hmm. process of drafting and enlisting in, in players, you know, you, you might have a Braden point ranked really highly on your list, but if you have the wrong guy just ahead of him, maybe that's the guy who's going to come up when you're drafting. And I, it was funny because when I, an NHL GM actually got in touch with me after this, I won't say who because it was an off the record conversation, but he he did relate to me how how yeah. his team how his team just came so close to drafting a player who hasn't panned out that well yet, but uh, that player was taken one pick ahead. And this other player fell to them and has turned out to be a really good player. I think that this is the story of the draft as much as anything. You can have a really good, you can have a good list, a Mm -hmm. very good list and still come out with a weak draft uh, when, when, when actually it all plays out during the draft process. You could have a, a fairly mediocre list and get lucky and mm-hmm. get two good players out of the draft. So it's, there's funny, there's the lists themselves and you might have a good list or a bad list, but the way the draft plays out, the dynamic of that also has a huge telling on, on um, how your particular team is going to look uh, in years to come uh, yeah. in terms of uh, whether they succeeded or failed at that draft. Well, Bruce, why don't we leave it there?
1: All right. We've been uh, Covered a lot of waterfront today, I think. We did. And a lottery day.
0: Yeah. Thanks for talking today.
1: Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone.
0: And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.